This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Political campaigns know a lot about voters, and that became obvious when news broke that Cambridge Analytica improperly mined data from as many as 87 million Facebook users. Mark Zuckerberg goes to Congress this week to answer questions about it. Cambridge Analytica has also claimed credit for Republican wins in Colorado in 2014. And so ahead of this year's election, we want to talk about voter targeting, what a campaign knows about you, how they use your social media presence to their benefit. David Flaherty heads Magellan Strategies, a Republican-leaning polling and campaign consulting firm in Louisville, Colorado. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Channel 4 in Britain went to Arvada to talk with people whose Facebook accounts had been accessed by Cambridge Analytica, including a woman they call Barbara. Her personality profile felt the most accurate of anyone we met. It suggested she's an introvert. Yeah, I, I can... I tend to be naturally, yes, but I can open up. The firm says it builds psychological profiles of voters. They scrape some private information off of Facebook in ways that Facebook says wasn't allowed. Is there any permissible way to get the kinds of information that Cambridge Analytica collected on voters? There is public data out there off of a voter file, and you can also obtain personal data by doing a survey and interviewing somebody. Um, when you say the voter file, you just mean the information yes, I give in, when I register to exactly. vote. Exactly. The Secretary of State maintains the list of registered voters in Colorado. It's roughly 3.6 million people. And on that file, there's a lot of information that for decades, that's how campaigns have targeted voters. So that they don't send direct mail, if you will, to everybody. You, there's limited budgets in campaigns, and so you need to target voters. Then you said interviewing is another way. Yes, another way to do it, interviewing or the basis behind sort of predictive modeling, which is part of the process that Cambridge Analytica and other firms use to predict how you feel about certain issues such as gun control or more money to fund teacher pay or transportation funding, if you will. They don't actually know your feelings about transportation funding, but they look at other information and they try to project how you might feel about a tax for transportation. Yes, and the more information they have beyond a voter file, such as uh, what you like on Facebook, uh, what teams you may like, what clubs you may belong to. You can even go back and and look at the comments you've made, perhaps, on your Facebook page, can give you an idea of the type of person and your personality. Now, gleaning all that from a Facebook page is appropriate if you're my friend on Facebook, and I'm sharing it willingly. But getting people to take a poll or use an app and then using that personal information without their permission is the violation here. So it sounds like there's just not a way to get the same kind of information if you're following the rules. True. Why would information like whether Barbara likes hiking or whether she's introverted, why would that be helpful to a political campaign? The way campaigns communicate with voters is very scientific. Knowing whether somebody's an introvert you can send a advertisement or a persuadable message to Barbara that perhaps may make her more likely to support a particular candidate because she feels this candidate views the world the way I do. This candidate is like me. This candidate shares my values. And the personality traits and getting into sort of psychographics is a step beyond what 
pretty much campaigns and national campaigns have been doing since 2004. And that's really the debate around was Cambridge Analytica's psychographics and understanding whether somebody was an introvert or not really going to make an impact at the ballot box. Um, And just from my 26 years of doing campaigns and having friends all around the country that do this for a living, that was always the big debate. And a lot of folks are skeptical of whether or not the personality trait component, if you will, of the Cambridge Analytica service or what they were selling was really effective. Where do you land? I'm curious. I am skeptical of it. Okay. Facebook has said uh, they're not sure if other companies or campaigns are doing what Cambridge Analytica did. You know, are there other Cambridge Analytica's out there? Uh, Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg was on Morning Edition recently with Steve Inskeep. Were there other firms, political or otherwise, who used data in the same way that Cambridge Analytica did? We don't know. What we announced when we talked about Cambridge Analytica is we're doing a thorough investigation and an audit. That is ongoing. And as we find those, we're going to notify people as we did with Cambridge Analytica. So it remains to be seen if there were other actors like Cambridge Analytica out there. We know that the Obama campaigns in particular... Uh, were innovative when it came to the use of social media. Very much so. During the 2012 presidential campaign, the Obama campaign had a lot of data engineers and programmers, and they created apps to help people sort of organize at the local level um, so that you could identify fellow friends like, I like Obama too. And post-2012, there was a lot written and a lot reported by the people that actually wrote the apps and what they used them for. And that spurred on a lot of new energy and an activity in that space for future campaigns. I've read one thing they did in 2012 was to say to people who allowed them access on that site, be it Facebook or otherwise, here's a video about registering to vote. And here are 10 of your friends on Facebook who may not be registered but live in swing states. It was absolutely where the person uh, said, yes, you can have access to my network. The Obama campaign had ways. Uh, I don't know particularly, but they knew this person we don't have identified as an Obama supporter. And it was a way for to leverage supporters to you know really use their networks. And the Romney campaign was not doing that. And people tried to replicate that after the 2012 election. Yeah. How, how are campaigns either trying to replicate that or build on that now? Well, you had the national organizations coming from the Republican side of the political spectrum. Uh, I was, you know, very familiar with, you know, Americans for Prosperity and some of the bigger independent expenditure Republican leaning groups hired a lot of teams of developers and engineers to replicate those sorts of tools so that you could a Republican or a conservative candidate could use them for their causes and so forth. So that was being done. It was also being done somewhat at the Republican National Committee. Moving forward, now there's also some private companies. I would fully expect but not claim to have knowledge of what the Democrat side is doing. But obviously, Hillary's campaign and a lot of other campaign operatives coming out of 12 wanted to replicate and leverage those tools. And I'm sure it's still ongoing. Cambridge Analytica and the situation we're looking at now, though, clearly is something that was over the line and did something in the spirit of the Obama activity, but arguably illegal. And we're obviously going to wait and see where that ends up. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about what campaigns know about you and what they can find out about you if they follow the rules. Uh, I'm joined by David Flaherty. He leads Magellan Strategies. It's a Republican-leaning polling and campaign consulting firm in Louisville, Colorado. What kind of information can you push to people on Facebook? Right. So a lot of the conversation is about what can be extracted legally or otherwise. 
what kind of power do you have to micro-target people on Facebook and other social what media What you're sites? really trying to do, Ryan, is build a relationship and a likability factor between the voter and the candidate. For example, in the Republican primary going on right now, we know that 40% of likely Republican primary voters thinks immigration is the number one issue that the candidate should be addressing, meaning building a wall, no sanctuary cities. So you're going to drop and push over Facebook an ad that is candidate X is really strong and opposes all sanctuary cities. Okay, you've got that immigration message. How, yes. how do you push that through Facebook? What do they offer you? Here's what makes Facebook so powerful. I can go to our voter file in the state of Colorado, and I know there's roughly 350,000 likely Republican primary voting individuals because they voted in three out of the four last primaries, let's say. I can actually take that list of 100,000 Republicans that are 65 and older. I can go to Facebook, and I can literally take that file as if it's an Excel file, a CSV file, and I can upload it into Facebook, and it's called a custom list. And they'll tell you whether any of those folks... Are on Facebook? They will. So let's say I load up a list of 100,000 people. And what Facebook will say is processing, processing after I upload it because they will match their information that they have on you, such as perhaps your address or your email address or your name or your the birth year that you have. And then it'll say, okay, you uploaded 100,000 people, 80,000 of those individuals matched. So that audience is ready for you to serve up an ad and push to them. That's how it works. But will you know which voters matched up with Facebook? Like, do they give you a report? No, that's the one sort of veil of secrecy and anonymity that they have where I know 80,000 people match. I don't know which 80,000, though. But still, for what I'm trying to achieve as a campaign strategist and and get our candidate in a position to win, that's really good. And that's a lot more accurate than me sending out 50,000 pieces of mail and hoping I get the right folks. Can we just run through and just list what, what can a campaign know about me? I know, know the my... year you were born. Okay, yeah. I know where you live. I know what elections you voted in going back as long as you have been registered where where you live. That's primarily the information. My we... gender. Sure, I know your gender. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Some states will not provide that information. I don't know your racial uh, or, or ethnicity. However, in certain states you can, such as Florida and Texas, because of redistricting, it's by law we need to know those things. But in Colorado, it's primarily your age, uh, where you live, uh, your gender, how often you vote um, is primarily the, the, the basic information. What other of my consumer habits can you look at to build a profile of me? I can know if you subscribe to certain magazines. I can know if you're willing to pay for it, what you bought at Walmart in the last month. I know what kind of car you can rent. Um, arguably, though, it should be noted. Some of that information may be old and inaccurate. I can find out how much your home is worth, perhaps using Zillow data. And it's these bits of information about an individual that help us understand better and you know, a predictive algorithm uh, to target you better without really knowing the truth. There's another part of that uh, British TV channel's interview with that voter in Arvada, Barbara, mm-hmm. that stood out to me. And I, I want to play this for you. Does it worry you that somehow people have kind of extracted this information about you from your online profile? It didn't worry me because I figured they were. <laughs> so you've always assumed that anything you put out there, that it's going to be collated in some way. Yeah, I just figured they were. That is to say, it would not surprise Barbara, the list of things you would know about her. I mean, at the end of the day, should people who are using social media just have their eyes opened a little more to the fact that 
when you get something for free online, it's not really free in the vast majority of cases. In other words, the company whose product you're using is getting something from you, even if it's not money. It's it's personal data. It's preferences. I think this Cambridge Analytica story is going to open a lot of eyes. Younger voters we know, or at least younger individuals, perhaps 44 and younger, are more comfortable with having their personal information on social networks. However, older voters or older individuals, really 50 and older, I think those groups of folks are the ones that are going to become more reluctant to perhaps participate in networks, but be more aware of, hey, I could be getting targeted here um, and and have more concerns regarding it. So you think that there's maybe a generational line to draw? You've been in the polling and political data world for more than 25 years, including creating the Republican National Committee's voter files. I wonder if, if you could talk to us just briefly about your own personal compass, about where you think it's uh, acceptable to micro-target voters and where you think it crosses the line. I don't think there's any harm for a firm or a campaign organization to use an algorithm as long as they're using publicly known data about an individual that I can either gather from knocking on your door from a grassroots program or a survey or on the voter file. I don't think it's ethically right to somewhat mislead people that you're participating in a survey on Facebook and realizing that all your data is getting stolen as well as all your friends. That's clearly over the line. The only thing is, is campaigns and campaign organizations will continue to use algorithms to make predictions about voters just because we can't call everybody up. You're never going to have enough volunteers to knock on enough doors. See, that's the power of predictive analytics in the campaign space. But I do expect within five to 10 years, there will be privacy laws. You know, there are some countries where you can't get a voter file with as much information as we have on now in Canada, in the UK. But I wouldn't be surprised if It'll be harder for your campaign or advertisers, for that matter, to know information about you, you know, as much as you can learn about somebody right now. David Flaherty is CEO of Magellan Strategies, a Republican-leaning polling, data mining, and campaign consulting firm in Louisville, Colorado. We talked about voter profiling and how political campaigns use social media in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And there's some news on this. Facebook has suspended another data company for potentially misusing users' information collected by a university. Still to come, how President Trump's latest trade moves may affect Colorado's farmers and ranchers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A lot of business in Colorado is at stake with President Trump's talk on trade. During the campaign a couple years ago, Trump often fired up crowds by railing against U.S. policy on China. You can win against China if you're smart. But our people don't have a clue. We give state dinners to the heads of China. I say, why are you doing state dinners for them? They're ripping us left and right. Just take them to McDonald's and go back to the negotiating table. Seriously. It's true. The president is now following through on his promise to change things. In March, he announced tariffs that he says will correct a big imbalance between the U.S. and China. China has fired back against Trump's tariffs with its own long list of products that will face similar treatment, from sorghum to high-tech parts manufactured in Colorado. China is only one of Trump's trade targets. He has forced Canada and Mexico to the renegotiating table. NAFTA has been 
a very bad deal for the United States, but we'll make it better or we'll have to do something else. Colorado does big business with NAFTA countries and with China in agricultural products. So let's dive into how the state's farmers and ranchers might be affected by Trump's trade actions. I am joined by Tom Lipitsky. He's Markets Division Director at the Colorado Department of Agriculture. And Tom, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Let's start with China. In response to President Trump, China recently said it will increase or impose tariffs on many agricultural products. How will that affect Colorado? Well, you know, China is a very important market for for agriculture in general. This last year, they imported about $27 billion worth of food and agriculture products. A big part of that was soybeans, almost half of it. But if we bring it back to Colorado, uh, they imported about $128 million worth of product from Colorado, of which $110 million was hides and skins. Hides and skins. Cattle? Yep. Okay. Cow hides and skins, which they import to use in their leather goods industries. And to date, those products haven't been targeted by, by the Chinese for any import tariffs. I imagine that that came as some relief. That is, because that's really the biggest product from from Colorado. But certainly the uh, the imposition or proposed imposition of tariffs on pork, beef, soybeans, sorghum, wheat, uh, those all have some impact on our Colorado producers. Indeed, pork stands out on the list. The Chinese will raise the tariff on that product to 25 percent. Yeah, 25 percent. That'll certainly have some impact on raising the price of uh, U.S. pork in the Chinese market for consumers and lessening the demand for, for U.S. pork. How have pork prices reacted to that news, by the way? You know, a lot of the commodities, when they were announced as potentials for tariff, we saw some steep prices declines. You know, soybeans dropped almost 30 cents a bushel when the, the announcement came out. Beef prices were off a couple dollars a hundred. Pork prices were lower. Corn prices followed. Uh, luckily, those prices have since recovered. But for those producers who were in the market on those days when the prices dropped, those drops were, were real and meaningful to their bottom lines. And stressful, I gather. Absolutely. Very stressful. Okay. You mentioned sorghum. I understand farmers are growing more of that in Colorado now than they have in the past. Right. Uh, we've got a couple different crops that uh, producers are shifting to as we see lower corn prices, lower wheat prices. Our producers are looking at some other things, sorghum and, and dry beans and sunflowers. So as we see more of that being grown here and those tariffs being a potential it's, it's of concern to us. Sorghum is uh, a crop that doesn't need a ton of water. I think it's mostly used in animal feed, maybe for ethanol. Is that right? Correct. Most of the, the sorghum that we raise is targeted towards animal feed. But China is a huge buyer of U.S. sorghum. So uh, we tend to get caught in the crosshairs there with the threat of the, the new tariffs and what that could mean for our sorghum producers here. Okay. When you look at uh, the, the equivalent of you in other states, do, do they have more reason to be worried than Colorado? That is to say, are other states being harder hit by this? You know, the, the tariffs that have been talked about relate to pork, of course, but also fruits and nuts. And that targets California, Texas, Florida very heavily. Uh, we're also seeing some imposition on orange juice, which uh, impacts Florida. So it's not just Colorado, but all the different states across the U.S. are going to have some impact if these tariffs are actually put in place. Do fruits on the western slope of Colorado get uh, exported to China? Is that a worry there? You know, typically our fruits from the western slope don't get exported. A lot of that's consumed right here in the regional market. Mm. But uh, but still, it has some impact if the 
fruits from California are not able to be exported, that creates more more supply in the U.S. market and dampens price for our producers as well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the potential effects of those proposed tariffs on Colorado's farmers and ranchers with Tom Lipitsky, who's Markets Division Director at the Colorado Department of Agriculture. We're also going to talk about NAFTA. Let's switch to NAFTA, the agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. How does that play out for Colorado agriculture? NAFTA is really, really important for Colorado. Almost half of the exports from Colorado go to Mexico and Canada. So very vital. That's over a billion dollars of exports from Colorado every year to those two countries. Mm. And uh, under NAFTA, products, uh, food and ag products trade almost virtually tariff-free between our three countries right now. So discussion about withdrawing from NAFTA poses some real concerns because we would go back to the tariff structure that was in place prior to NAFTA, uh, which would have that impact of raising prices for our customers and lessening demand for U.S. product. But, you know, the president has called NAFTA the worst deal ever signed. Um, Are there ways in which a renegotiation might benefit Colorado's farmers and ranchers? You know, I think the modernization that the President Trump's talking about could be very beneficial. Give me an example. A uh, couple examples. Uh, one is, I think, a re- reaffirmation that science is the basis on sanitary and phytosanitary type issues. And also, we've got some. Does pro- that just mean food safety? Yeah, food safety okay. issues that uh, sometimes weren't always as clear as they could have been, but uh, hopefully some discussion around that reaffirms that science is the basis. Help us understand why that's important. That's really important because right now we're in the midst of a uh, legal challenge with fresh potatoes to Mexico. Colorado, surprisingly, I learned this a few years ago, grows quite a few potatoes. We might associate those with Idaho, but in southern Colorado especially. Yeah, we raise a lot of potatoes. Colorado is one of the top shippers of fresh potatoes in the nation. And right now we have a majority of the market share going into Mexico. And uh, if we can resolve these legal issues, we can potentially grow our exports to 30 to $50 million a year. Is it that Mexico is saying our potatoes aren't up to snuff? They were accusing the U.S. of having some bugs and pests that uh, they didn't have, but the science community says, no, Mexico, you've got these too. And that brought about legal challenges from the Mexico producers. So if we can get reaffirmation of science as the basis, that would be a big step. What might be the downsides of a NAFTA renegotiation for Colorado? You know, one of the things that it brings into play is just uncertainty in the marketplace. Uh, We were just recently at a large trade show in Mexico, and a lot of the buyers were just a little hesitant because of the uncertainty that uh, this renegotiation or modernization creates. I think it's the uncertainty that uh, farmers and ranchers probably feel around the tariffs as well. Very true. Uh Uh, You know, at this point, it's all a a war of words, not so much a a trade war, but it's that uncertainty that uh, moves the market very quickly and very, very quickly. Words can move markets you know, we think of, of exports and imports, so a potato crossing a border and staying across the border. But for a lot of products like beef, I think in particular, they actually move back and forth yeah. across the border. And so this is a, a question of how uh, a new trade deal m- might affect that movement several times of a product. Well, you know, you mentioned beef, and that's one area where our three countries have become very, very integrated. For example, Mexico buys our bulls, breed stock, and genetics. 
We then turn around and buy some of their calves and feeder cattle, which get fed out in American feedlots, processed in American facilities, and then that beef gets re-exported back to Mexico. So our countries have become very, very dependent on uh, trade between our countries to help support our, our domestic industries. We spoke recently with one Colorado farmer, Greg Brophy. He farms corn and other crops in Ray on the Eastern Plains. He's a former state senator, and he headed up then-candidate Donald Trump's Agricultural Advisory Committee in this state. Brophy, who is a lobbyist today as well, says NAFTA is working well for farmers now. He doesn't want major changes. Do other farmers and ranchers you've talked to, who may have also voted for the president, Hope that NAFTA largely stays intact? Yeah, I think everybody believes that NAFTA, at least for agriculture, has been very good. Are there some things that can be changed and tweaked? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like ultra-filtered milk didn't exist when NAFTA was created. So there's some things that need to be touched up. That speaks to the modernization that you and uh, the president have talked about. Uh, Brophy also talked with us about China in particular. He does want Trump to somehow tame China on intellectual property and manufactured goods. They're horrible actors. They've been stealing our IP for years. They put up all kinds of barriers. You can't, you know, even Elon Musk said that a car made in China that comes into America pays a 2.5% tariff, but a car made in America that gets shipped to China, if they will take it, pays a 25% tariff. This has to end. Do the farmers you talk to sometimes feel like they're caught in the middle here, like that the real fight is over intellectual property and not necessarily pork and vegetables. I think producers of agricultural products feel that they kind of do get caught in the middle sometimes, and that's because some of our products are perishable, and uh, we rely on some of those markets, and if those markets aren't there, the product can sometimes perish or or, uh, not be as valuable later on. But, uh, But I think at the end of the day, most agricultural producers want to see fair and freer trade and understand that China has been a bad actor for a long time on intellectual property and, and uh, trademarks and patent issues. And so if it means, uh, you know, playing a very strong hand on tariffs uh, concerning other products that might have some retaliation, I think uh, producers are open to to that as long as we don't lose the gains we've fought so hard to get. And this is a negotiation. I mean, President Trump has said he thinks China will come to the bargaining table. And indeed, there were indications of that when President Xi announced that he's cutting auto tariffs that came just yesterday. Uh, to wrap up, Tom, uh, we spoke earlier of the anxiety that this might create in farmers and ranchers. And it, it just occurs to me that that already existed for farmers and ranchers, uh, smaller operations in particular that might already be struggling. Does this feel like one more layer of a stress cake? You know, agricultural producers right now are facing kind of a very difficult time. Some of our net incomes are the lowest they've been in years. We've got a world world awash in corn and soybeans and wheat, which has brought about low prices. And so producers are anxious right now that, you know, Anything that has to do with lowering prices could push some of these producers over the edge. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Enjoyed being here. Tom Lipitsky is Markets Division Director at the Colorado Department of Agriculture. A year ago, an explosion blew apart a home in Firestone, killing two men. Investigators say a small pipeline from an old oil and gas well leaked into the house and caused the blast. 
The well had been shut down for all of 2016. But as CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus told Nathan Heffel, it was turned back on in January of 2017. Ben, you've been looking into this story of that well, the one that caused the Firestone explosion. What have you found out? It is a somewhat interesting history. I mean, as interesting as the history of an oil and gas well can be in Colorado. It was drilled 25 years ago by a company called Garrity Oil and Gas. Now, Garrity's not around anymore because it merged with a company called Patina Oil and Gas. So the well was acquired by Patina. Um, and then Patina merged with Noble Energy. You may have heard of Noble Energy, the second largest oil driller on the front range. Um, and Noble acquired it in about 2004, 2005. And that was good timing because the well became a real star in terms of production around that time. Like it was a very productive well, uh, but it suffers the same fate all oil and gas wells do, the decline curve. And so you start to see production really fall from 2005 all the way to the point when Anadarko acquires it. So Anadarko Darko is the fourth company to have its hands on this oil and gas well. So what happened with the well in the couple of years before the explosion? So in 2014, Anadarko acquires it. And it's really, like we said, a shadow of itself in terms of production. Um, it's off for all of 2016, or at least it's not producing anything in 2016. Um, we asked Anadarko questions about the well and its history, and they can't answer anything because of various federal investigations and litigation that's going on. So we've tried to piece this together the best we can with the data from the state and documents that we could find contracts. We know that in, it was shut off for all of 16, and then it was back on in January of 2017. Okay, so then small, tiny amounts of oil and gas are produced for the four months leading up to the explosion in Firestone. Why would Anadarko turn a low producing well back on? So again, Anadarko won't talk to us about this specifically, but in interviews with industry insiders and reviewing the mineral rights contract, it appears what motivated the company is a concept known as leasehold. So mineral rights holders, they don't want companies to sit on the oil and gas reserves, not actively pumping them, right? And so they have provisions in contracts that say that if you're not pumping for a certain amount of time, the oil and gas lease is canceled, is void. And so what drillers do often is they keep these old wells going. They trickle out a little bit of oil and gas to hold the lease, hence leasehold. But as I understand it, if a company were to lose the lease, in many cases, it could just negotiate a new one. So why then go through the hassle of maintaining old wells? Because a mineral rights contract that would be signed today would be very different than one that was negotiated 25 years ago. Oil and gas is way more valuable today than it was then. So there would be a bonus payment, probably thousands of dollars a mineral acre. Royalty rates today are close to 20% or at 20%. Back in the day, it was 12.5%. So it makes a lot of sense if a company wants to someday come in with a modern, high-producing well, and they want to use those mineral rights, if they can have that old contract attached to it, that could be a huge difference in terms of profit margin. Then there are a bunch of wells operating in Colorado that aren't necessarily producing lots of oil and gas, but let a company hold on to the potential of future profits? Right. That appears to be the case. Now, every company's oil and gas program is unique in Colorado, and we don't know the full extent of how many wells in Colorado are merely held by production. Again, Anadarko isn't answering any questions. But the whole reason we started looking into this was because after the explosion, Anadarko shut down 3,000 active wells in Colorado. Uh, and the company's overall production didn't take much of a hit. They still had one of their biggest years ever. It did fall 5% from 16 to 17. 
but more than 30 million barrels of oil was still pumped in Colorado and they pumped more natural gas than they had ever before. So the company still had a hugely productive year. That suggests to us that a lot of the wells that they keep active in Colorado were not high producers, but kept merely for the future potential of drilling. That was CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus speaking with Nathan Heffel about the Firestone explosion. Ben and CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood have much more on how that incident affects public safety across the state and in Firestone. You can hear those stories this week or go to CPR.org. When we come back, he risked losing his job, but the Denver Post's editorial page editor did it anyway. He told the newspaper's owner to shape up or ship out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Over the weekend, the Denver Post staged a rebellion against its corporate owners. The paper published an editorial and a flurry of opinion pieces denouncing its hedge fund owner, Alden Global Capital. This is in the face of repeated newsroom layoffs, which critics say have gutted an important Colorado watchdog. So are there signs it's made any difference? Why don't we ask editorial page editor Chuck Plunkett, who led the charge. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. Where where are you right now? What's around you? (laughs) I'm in a a small office that's a little quieter than it should be today. (laughs) Um, Yesterday was the last day of a long time, for 20 years, Opinion editor, letters editor Cohen Pert, and um, my uh, editorial writer Megan Schrader is on is on maternity leave, and so I am a one man show right now. That is to say, the Denver Post offices, the newsroom feels a bit emptier these days, or a lot emptier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hmm. I'll say that the the first round of these layoffs was yesterday, and your editorial asked the Post's owner to quote rethink its business strategy across all its newspaper holdings. Consider this is also a signal to our community and civic leaders that they ought to demand better. Denver deserves a newspaper uh, and an owner of that paper that supports its newsroom. Have you heard from Alden or Digital First Media, sort of in the middle there, since since this was published? I have not heard directly from either of those entities. Um, digital first media tends to be the interface for the Denver Post. Uh, we interact more with those folks. And um, certainly there have been conversations between their executives and um, Leanne Colosiopo, our, our editor, but um, I have not been part of, part of them. Do you hold out any hope that Alden will reverse course and uh, perhaps start hiring again? Well... I don't have a lot of hope for that. I, 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 I'm opti- I try to be optimistic by nature. And when I look at what Denver has to offer, I think it would be silly for them not to reinvest, to not see what they've got. It seems to me like they've, they're on a schedule where they believe that they have a dying audience when, in fact, Denver's growing by, by you know, tens and tens of thousands of folks. We've had 100,000 folks move here since all of them took control um, of our of our paper, and it's a it's a place that really ought to have a market. It's folks who are hyper educated, who have money to spend. It's a town that is considering or is in the running to be uh, the second headquarters for Amazon, in a, in a town and state that's considering a, a Winter Olympics bid. 
on and on. It's one of the hot it places. You look on any kind of the where's the most exciting place to live now in, in the in the United States. Denver consistently ranks near the top. These are folks who are educated, who who are interested in their community, or interested in Colorado, and I can't imagine a robust, uh, professional, sophisticated, smart big news operation couldn't attract all kinds of subscriptions. And yet we hear, Chuck, so often about newspapers losing revenue. Um, You know, given that, wouldn't it make sense that newspaper owners are having to make cuts? Put that into some context for us. Oh, I don't disagree with that. This is a nuanced subject. Um, Right now, print continues to be what makes the money. And if you look at the long-term projections for print. It's not a pretty one. So you've got to be savvy. You've got to retool. But we have adapted and we have innovated and we've created exciting online presences and products. We just started a digital paywall uh, trying to get folks accustomed to the idea of supporting the Denver Post through a digital subscription so that we could wean ourselves off of that print. I think that's the direction you want to go, not immediately diminishing your quality by by a large degree, as soon as you put the paywall up. So I, I guess I hear you saying that you don't think the cuts at the Denver Post are uh, fully, totally a reflection of the realities of the newspaper business. I think it, one news industry analyst described what Alden may be doing with the Post as harvesting cash. Uh, that is to say, you think they are taking uh, more from the Post than they need to, and that the cuts don't fully reflect the economic realities. That's correct. Okay. Um, I, I, I look at other cities that have papers that are larger than ours, newsrooms that are larger than ours, um, by significant amounts. And I, I just don't believe that we couldn't capture a lot more if we stayed in the game for the long term. It seems like what we've got here is a cynical strategy just to milk it uh, on, on its way out. Uh, Chuck Plunkett, editor of the editorial pages at the Denver Post. I understand you didn't tell the corporate owners that you were going to be running your editorial or those several opinion pieces over the weekend. Uh, what was it like for you leading up to those pieces coming out? It's been a real emotional uh, experience. And, you know, last Wednesday, as I was gearing up to to, to produce this package and, and hit the go button, I called William Dean Singleton, former owner of the Denver Post and the continuing chairman of the Denver Post board and a member of our editorial board right. to run it by him. And he said, you know, I, I support what you're doing. I think that's the right thing to do. He said, but you need to, you need to be aware that you could lose your job over this. And so that just put me in a, kind of a brutal debate with myself. I'm in a position because of the fact that I'm the editorial page editor to say something that could matter. Um, shouldn't I use that position? It's not a situation that a human being finds himself in very often. Um, and it was hard to think of what to do. But if you read what the experts say, and, and you rely on your gut experience and your own experience of having watched the newsroom downsize in these strange ways, you realize that really if you don't speak up now, you're going to lose your chance and you're going to be writing your own obituary. And once you make those series of observations, you have really no choice but to do the right thing. Are you surprised you have a job today? 
well, yeah, I am in some <laughs> ways, but but then again, I mean, because that that was a pretty out there thing to do. Um, but because of the reaction, the reaction has been so great, uh, and people are cheering for us, and it's open to conversation in the United States of America, not just at the Denver Post, not just in Colorado, but across communities coast to coast that have seen their papers decline in part because of chains like those controlled by digital first media and Alden Capital. And it's set off a nerve. And hopefully there's a willingness on the part of DFM and Alden to re- maybe they're rethinking things a little bit. And maybe the, the fact that I'm still here is a signal that they got the message. You said in your editorial, quote, if Alden isn't willing to do good journalism here, it should sell the post to owners who will. Uh, I'll say that we reached out to newspaper analyst Ken Doctor, and he said in the newspaper world, there's never been a protest like the one you orchestrated over the weekend. There have been articles about your efforts in the New York Times, the Washington Post. You were on NPR's All Things Considered Monday. Uh, In any case, Doctor points to other cities where a different kind of buyer has come in and purchased the local paper, Minneapolis, Dallas, Charleston, South Carolina, Uh, There's the Salt Lake Tribune, which a local family, the Huntsman's, purchased from Digital First Media. Doctor says any new owner or a recommitted owner has to have money and patience. It takes a combination of a a long-term perspective. It takes capital. It takes capacity, then financial capacity. And it takes that, that vision of how you not only revive a storied print franchise, but how you use the digital tools of the day to really deliver the news. You reflected on the digital innovations at the Denver Post lately. Do you have someone in mind that, you know, you'd love the the Post to be sold to? I don't have a human being or or set of human beings in mind, Um, other than it would be great if they had a deep love for Colorado and a connection to Colorado and, you know, preferably Denver as well. Um, but trying to like guess who that might be, I'm kind of holding my fire on that. You know, uh, that analyst, Ken Doctor, uh, who's associated with the Neiman Journalism Lab, uh, told us a few days ago that one issue is that the Post has major pension liabilities, which makes it potentially less attractive to a buyer. What, what would be your sales pitch? Chuck Plunkett, for someone who who might at, at the beginning have to lay out a lot of cash. Well, look at what you're going to get. A newspaper is a wonderful thing to own. It's a proud part of the American tradition, and it's a proud part of what makes our democracy work. And Colorado is a, is a real can-do kind of place. Denver is a can-do kind of place. Um, part of it has to do with our geography. Part of it has to do with our, you know, our, our history of uh, adventurers coming to seek, their, to seek their fortunes and what have you. And a lot of it has to do now with just the real entrepreneurial spirit that we have here in Colorado. And we have so much potential. And wouldn't you want to be a part of that uh, from the perspective or at the helm of the biggest newspaper uh, in town and biggest newspaper in the region? the possibilities that you would get to have, the fun that you would get to have, and the good that you could do is worth the investment. Thanks for being with us.
Thank you for having me. Chuck Blunkett, editorial page editor for the Denver Post. Over the weekend, the Post published a series of opinion pieces and an editorial about its corporate owners and a new round of layoffs that began yesterday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We've been covering a lot of angles about guns, especially since the Parkland school shooting in Florida, and we've been asking what questions you have. Today, we'll share a few of those questions and the answers. Anson Abro of Fort Collins wanted to know why gun violence research cannot be funded. We talked about this in depth, and you can find that conversation at CPR.org, but here's a summary of what we know. The Dickey Amendment, named after former Arkansas Representative Jay Dickey, created a de facto ban on federal funding for gun research in the 1990s. Now, this was the status quo until the recent federal budget passed. After decades of impasse, it allows the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to study gun violence. Researchers, though, are skeptical because there is no funding as of yet to do this kind of work. At the state level, we spoke with Dr. Larry Wolk, head of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. He told us why funding for gun violence research in Colorado is essentially non-existent. Without that conduit, without that pool of federal funds that we can tap into, uh, it really then falls on, you know, um, the state, uh, whether it's through general fund, which we have no funding uh, to date. Um, We haven't received any funding to date uh, to do this or even the private foundation community uh, who has shown some interest, but again, not uh, not really funded anything direct in this area. Jane Jones of Wheat Ridge asks, why do public high schools allow the National Rifle Association to sponsor programs for Boy Scouts, 4-H, ROTC, etc., which she says creates a, quote, fun gun atmosphere for high-risk youth? The Associated Press reported on this topic recently. According to the AP, the NRA gave more than $7 million to schools across the country from 2010 to 2016. Colorado's schools didn't get much of that, about $36,000. The AP also reported that Denver public schools turned down NRA funding for their junior ROTC air rifle teams in the wake of the Parkland shooting. According to Alex Renteria, a DPS spokeswoman, The district was receiving materials for ROTC from the NRA, but no cash donations. Renteria says the NRA's position on keeping our schools safe from gun violence is clearly inconsistent with the stance taken by Denver Public Schools Board of Education. Zach Hotchstadt wrote in with an idea. How about requiring gun owners to buy liability insurance? Wouldn't the insurance industry, he says, be able to quickly assess which gun owners presented the highest risk? Could this be a tool for keeping guns out of the hands of people who demonstrated the highest risk without infringing on Second Amendment rights? Well, we looked into this. In 2013, several states, California, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Illinois, saw gun liability bills introduced. And that might have created a system where insurance companies specifically screened for gun owners' risk before issuing them a policy. But those never became law. We spoke with Mike Berry from the Insurance Information Institute, an industry-supported research group in New York. He says no states have required gun liability insurance because it would be hard to come by. What happened in states where state lawmakers looked to mandate this, I think one of the immediate concerns was that state legislatures were considering um, 
mandating the purchase of an insurance product that was not easily available. Barry notes that in some cases, gun owners have managed to get liability coverage through their homeowners' policies. But in those cases, it's not that the insurance company assessed the risk of gun ownership. It's that people might be covered for a gun-related incident on their insured property. What other questions do you have about guns? Go to CPR.org, and we'll keep you updated on what we learn. This is Colorado Matters.